ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Everything hinges on your perspective. When Russia blocks grain exports through the Black Sea, we in the West call that a form of economic blackmail. But when the EU blocks supplies of Russian goods from entering Europe or European goods going the other way, well, those are called sanctions. And the Kremlin, of course, well, it uses the same terminology, except in reverse. Which is not to suggest that the Putin dictatorship isn't at fault for the Ukrainian war and the current international tensions. But just to emphasise the point that no matter what descriptive terms you use, Economic warfare is economic warfare. And there are fears it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. In fact, one of our experts today describes it as the greatest global threat after climate change. Hello, Anthony Fennell here with a Future Tense episode about the increasing use of sanctions, geoeconomic confrontation and the possible future consequences for a world already facing severe tensions. We used to see economic tools as an alternative to war. And I think what you're seeing right now is that they're increasingly becoming part of the battlefield. Sanctions could be a good tool, but uh, this tool needs to be used very carefully and uh, very smart. We can affirm much stronger human rights guidelines and instruments and agreements. Focus hard on saying key products on which we all depend must be excluded from any economic warfare. A lot of it, of course, has to do with the spillover effects from COVID and then the war in Ukraine and the growing rivalry between major powers around the world. And those things combined have made many countries focus much more on shorter term economic security, national production of key industries where they can be focused on that. And in some cases, it's because there are bigger bets being placed around, for example, the development of greener technologies, such as the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. So that combination of factors has made that competition much stronger in the short term. Sadia Zahidi from the World Economic Forum, whose latest survey of key global risks puts geoeconomic confrontation at number three. What we're hearing from chief economists across industries is that they are expecting this shift in geopolitics to affect, to a very large extent, their business decisions and their investment decisions over the coming year. So obviously that's going to be making changes to supply chains. That's going to change the possibilities for growth and investment for many developing economies. It's going to change where skilled labor flows over the long term. And so again, could greatly change the economic geography compared to the one that we had at the end of the 2010s. I think there is some sense that there's been an overcorrection from much greater economic cooperation in the past to, at the moment, this sort of much more defensive approach that's currently being taken. One of the spillover effects of this kind of economic warfare is that overall prices for many critical goods and services will remain much higher. There will be far less focus on development and investment that is necessary for overall living standards to improve. So I think there could be a backlash to this type of approach over time, given that that's going to be overall inflationary. And so again, I think 
there's not much choice but to eventually head back towards cooperation. And yet we see certainly China and also Russia talking about new alliances and trying to build a new international order. How is that likely to play out? Yeah, I think with the shifting power balances and with very different value systems, very different political systems across these different countries, you're already starting to see very different alliances emerging. So, for example, the latest expansion at the at the BRICS summit, the dialogue that occurred at the G20 meeting and then the communique that came out, you're starting to see some of the impact of that overall already. And then I think there's going to be other more specific developments. For example, one of the things we speculate is, you know, could there be the creation of an OMEC for mineral exporting countries similar to OPEC? So much uncertainty and many of these shifts are occurring much more rapidly than they were previously. And all of which, of course, undermines the once widely held idea that trade and international commerce bring nations together rather than push them apart. So, I mean, let's understand first, Anthony, that economic warfare is as ancient as warfare. You know, the desire to destroy your enemy by burning those things on which they depend, like their food, their agriculture, their destroying their water wells. So it's an ancient form of warfare. Dr Hugo Slim from the Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict at Oxford University. I think what's distinct today is that we live in a modern world of a very advanced international finance system, a global finance system, on which almost everybody depends in some form or other. And the same for global trade. So our global trade has been incredibly interconnected as well, so that someone in Burkina Faso depends on that global trade the same way that somebody in France or Italy depends on it, or far away in Indonesia. So global trade in energy supplies, in food supplies, in medical supplies, is totally interconnected in a way that it necessarily wasn't in earlier periods of time. And in the current situation, people who have no connection at all to a conflict, say the conflict in Ukraine, can be quite significantly damaged, can't they, by economic warfare? Exactly. I mean, we are familiar with the, you know, the notion of collateral damage, that if you're a civilian and, you know, there's a war around you and people are targeting military institutions or military forces, you can become a victim caught in the crossfire. But in a sense, when we're talking about global trade and global supplies, we're talking about remote collateral damage. So it is exactly that point that somebody in Congo or Lebanon, who is miles away from the conflict in Ukraine and has no vested interest, no political stake in it, can suddenly become hungry and face huge price rises because of economic warfare strategies and tactics pursued by the parties to the Ukraine conflict. When we're talking about Ukraine, it's easy if you're in the West to look and say, well, look, the Russians are employing economic warfare against the Ukrainians and, and, and trying to pressure Western countries who support Ukraine. But you've pointed out, haven't you, that when we look at that particular conflict, economic warfare runs both ways, doesn't it? It certainly does. And remember, you're talking to a Brit. You're talking to someone whose country pioneered the modern naval blockade. And, you know, in, in the 19th century and then in World War I and World War II, our Navy blockaded Europe and refused to let supplies in as part of economic warfare. So, yeah, it goes both ways. And it goes both ways in this war because Western sanctions... And sanctions is a sort of polite term for economic warfare, if you like. Western sanctions are definitely out to damage the Russian economy. 
with President Putin's government, we're seeing a country that is very ready to use economic warfare, is using it all the time. And it's not a question of hesitation or precaution. I think for him, it's just when's the best time to really step it up, as he is now, by bombing Ukrainian ports, Ukrainian energy, trade, food infrastructure, and so deliberately targeting what the lawyers would call civilian objects, which are indispensable to the survival of the Ukrainian population. You know, there was an amazing agreement, the grain agreement, the Black Sea agreement, that the Russians, the Ukrainians made, mediated by the Turkish government and the UN, to safely export Ukrainian wheat and Russian wheat. And that has now broken down because the Russians walked away from it. So there's no doubt in my mind that President Putin and his generals and war cabinet are up to really increase economic warfare on Ukraine. And they're doing that despite clear evidence that playing a game of sanctions-based one-upmanship with the EU and the world's biggest economy, the United States, is slowly undermining Russia's international position. The Kremlin claims, of course, that Western sanctions are ineffective. But then they would say that, wouldn't they? So my name is Alexandra Prokopenko. I am non-resident scholar for Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center in Berlin. I wouldn't say that sanctions are not working. They are not working in the short term or if the, the primary goal of the sanctions was to collapse Russian economy is very quickly. These goals are not achieved. But on the long term and, on the, and even on the middle terms, Russian economy is shrinking and the way how the demand now distributed within Russian economy, there is nothing common in, it's nothing about uh, well-being of people. It's more about only state spending. And once the state spending stops, the economic growth will, will stop. So once Russian state will stop spending on war, the growth will end. And the financial sanctions, which are limited the possibilities for Russian businesses and pushing Russia to find new ways how to pay for growing imports, how to proceed export transactions, raising transactional costs on Russian exports. It's also thanks to sanctions. And what we see now from the data of budget revenues, which oil and gas revenues are shrinking, growing exports to China and Russia, it's also thanks to sanctions. So they are working, but they are not working as they were designed. Sanctions could be a good tool, but uh, this tool needs to be used very carefully and uh, very smart. Because backed into a corner, according to Alexandra Prokopenko, Vladimir Putin might turn his focus to nuclear weapons. An extreme shift, but not an unimaginable one. For political scientist Abraham Newman at Georgetown University, the growing use of economic coercion as a tool of geopolitics risks diminishing our ability to broadly cooperate at an international level. You know, globalization has brought a huge amount of benefits to the planet. It's been probably the largest poverty reduction exercise that human history has ever experienced. And that effort to connect the world economically is currently under threat. And we're just seeing the tremors right now, whether it's gas pipelines being cut off in Europe or semiconductor plants being threatened between the US and China. And those tremors, if they continue, they could disrupt this project that really is essential for kind of human welfare. This isn't a new story. It's just that we brainwashed ourselves a little bit, that globalization only had an upside, 
and we forgot to really think and prepare for those downsides. So I think the Ukraine conflict has really, it was a a harsh wake-up call for Europe in particular, because uh, Europe and the European Union had put a really strong bet on this, I would call it a caricature of globalization, that it just generated peace and prosperity. And they'd done so in a way that they really hadn't thought that military activity or this kind of economic coercion could come home to them on the continent. And that has been exposed as just a policy stance that they, that will not allow them to prosper going forward. I think another big lesson has been from the sanctions that Europe and the United States imposed on Russia, just the extent to which economic pressure could be posed on you know, a great power like Russia, another really powerful state. And we've seen U.S. and European actions freeze hundreds of billions of central bank reserves. It's, it's really extraordinary. And I think if you're China or Brazil or India, you have to see that as something, a possible lesson for them as well. But have we now got to a situation looking at what's happened in Ukraine where economic conflict is, is likely to be seen from now on as just the flip side of the coin, you know, military conflict on one side and then the other is uh, economic? Yes. And I think what a, a really important lesson is that we used to see economic tools as an alternative to war. And I think what you're seeing right now is that they're increasingly becoming part of the battlefield. So when you see what the U.S. and Europe are doing in Ukraine, it's an effort to assist Ukrainian objectives on the battlefield. And so we really need to think of these things not just as alternatives, but as part and parcel of conflict. Last year, in 2022, in the New York Times, you penned an article which was titled, The US is the only sanctioned superpower. It must use that power wisely. How wisely has it used that power? My concern was what was happening at the time, and in particular vis-a-vis Iran, that the United States was going it alone and really hadn't built a coalition to support its position. And I think that that's quite dangerous because even though these economic weapons are so powerful, if you keep using them and you don't, and the rest of the world doesn't see them as legitimate, it risks that other countries will turn against not just your economic sanctions policy, but your you know, economic networks more generally. I think the current effort in Ukraine is much more uh, broad-based and has a lot of support in Europe. And so I think it's a much more responsible use of these tools. But where I see the, the big question mark is what, you know, third countries or global South countries will think of these efforts. And as much as we can use these powers independently, if we do not get other countries on board, it will over time undermine our position in the world. Abraham Newman from Georgetown University, author of the newly published book, Underground Empire, How America Weaponized the World Economy. So, while there are question marks and cautions around the long-term implications of an increase in sanctions and other forms of economic coercion, there's also the reality that all major international players employ them in one way or another. Charles Edel at the US-based Center for Strategic and International Studies believes the recent experience with Russia demonstrates the importance of effective and coordinated pre-planning, what he calls economic statecraft. And he says if the world is to avoid a major economic catastrophe, the US and its allies need to start thinking more strategically now about future contingencies 
in the event of a conflict with China. China is much more deeply ingrained into the global economy. It is the primary trading partner of 120 different countries. It holds much more in reserves of foreign capital, making this more challenging. But it also means that because China is so deeply integrated into global markets, into global finance, that it also has vulnerabilities and exposure as well. And so it's probably worth thinking through because what we're simply talking about here is how can we prevent the things that we want to never have happen from happening? And are there things that we can begin to think about both individually as uh, countries and then across a range of countries that cumulatively would begin to have an effect on Xi Jinping's thinking about risks he might be contemplating, particularly across the Taiwan Straits? So part of economic statecraft then is not just planning for, you know, economic warfare, but it's also about signalling to a country like China or Russia beforehand what the consequences of the economic consequences of their actions might be. Well, that's exactly right. And the point is you want to use economic statecraft so that you don't have to use economic sanctions and war in the first place. But in order to do that in a way that will likely have any type of impact, you have to do so in a way that is visible, that is public, and is fundamentally credible. You know, one of the reasons that Putin's invasion of Ukraine has been hampered quite as much as it has is because Putin simply did not believe that the West would levy the degree of sanctions uh, that they had, uh, you know, that they would be willing to impose sufficiently rigorous amount of cuts that affected themselves as well. Had he believed that before he invaded, that might have changed his calculations in the first place. But for that to happen elsewhere, we need to begin to think of things that aren't just a planning, but that are visible and that begin to look a little bit more credible than they have in the past. Deterrence is based on perceptions, perceptions of what you know a potential opponent might think about what capabilities do you have and are you willing to act on them? Now, you say that the United States needs what you're terming an economic contingency planning committee. Could I get you to take us through that idea? Just unpack that for us. What we are really uh, calling for here is that the reason that the United States and its allies was able to scale up the sanctions that it was imposing on Russia so quickly is because it had the internal processes in place in the U.S. government to begin thinking this problem through and coordinating with allies. However, the United States has so many sanctions programs that it runs that it barely has enough officers to track them all. And we haven't done economic modeling, no less contingency planning, on what something would look like, not against Russia, but against a much more challenging opponent like China. And so what we call for here is not the imposition of sanctions, but rather the U.S. government to begin standing up the committees internally so that it can begin to think about which types of sanctions might be useful, might be credible, might be likely to have effect. And even when they do have effect, beginning to model what the economic repercussions of actually pulling the trigger on some of these sanctions would look like. Again, NATO was able to do this so quickly in Russia because NATO has such a long history of alliance planning between it that wasn't only an interagency, a U.S. government planning process, but from that, they began to have conversations with and across the alliance, which meant that when 
the decision was on to begin to punish Russia for its invasion economically, there was a menu of options to choose from. The United States could choose option A, Germany could choose option B, France could choose option C, and Australia, if it wanted to, could choose option D. Those options are not yet formulated nor modeled about what this would look like in regards to China. So our our call was to stand up the internal planning agency within the U.S. government that can begin thinking about that and then coordinating that. The type of planning committee that you're talking about, yes, it would be modeling scenarios for the future for how U.S. and its allies, their economic power would be influential in the world. But presumably, it would also be modeling what the impact on the United States would be of economic warfare, what the damage, if you like, would be to the United States. That's That's absolutely right, because if you don't do this, you're simply kind of whistling in the dark and doing this in a vacuum. And any option that you choose here would have economic implications. And so part of the thinking here is you would have to tee up a bunch of options and then rigorously analyze them, which ones are likely to be useful, which ones are more likely to be totally counterproductive, what would be the economic impact of using option X, Y, or Z, and then Dealing with the ramifications and the fallout, what are the actual government policies that you would like to use to soften and to mitigate the effects of those? So absolutely, you know, if you don't have a group of people thinking this through, how can you possibly decide what are the most useful options for this? But thus far, when we think about, when we discuss uh, some of the contingencies that we want to very much avoid, the economic muscle is largely absent for this beyond kind of the largest, most hand-wavy of comments of there would be large economic displacement from this. And the conversation has to move beyond that at this point. Some political scientists and, and economists are critical of the whole notion of economic warfare because of the threat they see to the global economy, that it could start to limit the idea of, of open markets, of free trade. Your thoughts on that? Uh, well, my thoughts on that are, first of all, they are correct, but it's already happening. It's already happening from Beijing's perspective because they regularly use their economic muscle, see the case of Australia, to try to advance their own political objectives. So first of all, this is absolutely happening. Second of all, I'm in total agreement that no one wants a war to happen and where you begin to levy sanctions left, right, and center, because we really do have to think about if, God forbid, a war breaks out, the implications of it would be vast to the global economy. Not only would it disrupt global trade, it would wreak havoc on global supply chains. It would imperil a vibrant Asian democracy, exert extreme pressure on America's closest allies, and probably bring the U.S. and China into direct confrontation themselves. So the question becomes, how do you avoid all that? And if you can begin thinking about targeted sanctions and sanctions that have bite to them in their collective utility, that's the point of this. Uh, Not arguing that this wouldn't have effect economically, it would, but to make sure that we don't get to the worst possible outcome, which is a war that would be catastrophic in its effects. Charles Edel. Hugo Slim at the University of Oxford goes one step further. He argues that the broader international community should be involved in planning how best to avoid or try and limit the impact of economic warfare. An international regulation to that effect, he argues, is worth exploring. Well, in a sense, the the Black Sea Grain Agreement was a really good example of improvised regulation of economic warfare. I hope in some way it starts again, but that'll only happen if it's in President Putin's interest to start it again. So 
the options we have are otherwise much slower. So we can think ahead and perhaps more to the next conflict than this one and say, can we adapt the Geneva Conventions to have a new protocol which talks specifically about global economic warfare? I think that's unlikely. I think states wouldn't agree it. The other thing we have is existing human rights law. Now, we know that the right to food, the right to a livelihood, the right to trade, to an economic life is central in modern human rights treaties agreed by all states. So that's probably the best way forward, that we gradually over the next few years, and hopefully in time for any other big war, big global war, we can affirm much stronger human rights guidelines and instruments and agreements between states. And these would really focus on exclusions, I think. They would focus hard on saying key products like food commodities, medical commodities, key life-saving products on which we all depend must be excluded from any economic warfare. So, okay, you can you know, cut various banking facilities, you can stop trading, you can disinvest, you can do those things, but you cannot interrupt the flow of commodities essential to our basic needs for life. And that, in a sense, that kind of limiting effect would still then allow, wouldn't it, for democratic countries to actually try to punish the actions of, say, someone like Putin? Well, it would, because, and, and this is the notion that the, the West and the UN talk about smart sanctions, because they try and talk about, you know, humanitarian sensitive sanctions in the way I've just described, which make sure that the basic means of life continue to be traded and unsanctioned while you try and target, you know, the rich elites who are largely responsible for the war policy. How realistic is it to expect that we will move down that path? Well, regulating war is always a very patchy business. Sometimes we can agree regulations, but then, you know, if you look at most wars today, they won't be respected by the parties to a war. And compliance remains very difficult to achieve. So getting people in the dock and prosecuting them remains very difficult. But I think we still have to try because over time we create new norms, we create new expectations by citizens and civilians and soldiers about basic regulation of warfare. And we have to try. I think we can probably get something on paper in the next five years if, if, if everybody works hard to do that. And then we have something with which to talk about good conduct and bad conduct in warfare and in economic warfare. And there have been some successes in the past, haven't there? I know you've looked at Liberia and Sierra Leone and, and the, the kind of trade regulations that came out of those conflicts. It's true. So a lot of those were focused on diamonds, for example, and illegal diamond trading, and they became tarred as blood diamonds, as you'll remember, some of your listeners will remember. And that was very successful. So diamond companies came together, diamond miners came together, and they all agreed a way of recognizing and excluding blood diamonds from international trade. So exactly, there are precedents around wars in the 90s, which we could build on and hopefully secure people's right to the essentials of life in a global war. I would say that it's not only with regard to, of Russia, but globally, sanctions become more and more a common tool for policymakers. And to me, as a researcher, it's obvious that the global community needs some sort of uh, facility, some commission uh, with the United Nations who will research and observe how economic warfare used, how different countries can coordinate 
this type of tools, then this would be very timely because we are one step before the raising tensions between two biggest economies in the world, I mean, between US and China, and they are both playing sanctions game. And these kind of games would have unexpected consequences for the whole world. And it's better for everyone's well-being when sanctions would be at least very well described and uh, policymakers would understand the consequences of their actions well. Because when play sanction games, that definitely would be spillovers on uh, emerging economies, on uh, economies dependent from uh, US and uh, China. So I think that would be very important for the global well-being. Alexandra Prokopenko. We also heard today from Hugo Slim, Charles Edel, Abraham Newman, and Sadia Zahidi. Thanks to Future Tense co-creator Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.